One of the things we have found working with Muslims is that when you talk with them, when you get into a discussion with them, invariably you will start using definitions that seem to be the same. We talk about God, they talk about God. We talk about prophets, they talk about prophets. We talk about heaven and hell, they talk about heaven and hell. Because we have a lot of similarities with Islam. We uh, both believe in a monotheistic faith. Uh, we both have a similar history. Both Muslims, Christians, and Jews go back to Abraham for their inheritance. Uh, we have similar scriptures. Uh, we both, all of us, do believe that Moses was given the Taurat. We believe also that Dauda or David was given the Zabur or the Psalms. And Muslims believe that Jesus was given the Injil. We know it was written by others who were with him. So we have similar teachings and we have similar volitions. The difficulty comes in defining what we're talking about. When you talk about God, we need to ask, are we talking about the same God? I remember I was in uh, London oh, back in the 1990s and I was uh, doing some talks with some Muslim students. And every week we would go to a park and we would take a theme per week. And then one week we were talking about the Khilafah, the Khilafah, which is the Islamic State. And we were comparing the Khilafah with the kingdom of God. And I, I was having a hard time getting this through. My background, I'm a Mennonite, and so in my Mennonite background, the whole idea of the kingdom of God, the fact that we separate church and state is, is very important because in my background, those of us who are Mennonites, we were persecuted for this back in, in the, uh, just after the Reformation. And so I was trying to get across to my Muslim friends that we don't want a state, a theocratic state, a state that is a piece of real estate that is on earth that we can look at and visibly see. We, for us, it's much more of a relationship. And I just could not get this to, through to the Muslim friends. We, it, it was if, as if we were talking right past each other. I went home, jumped into the tub like I always do when I want to think well. And as I was sitting there in the tub watching the steam dissipate up into the ceiling, suddenly I remembered my... The, the devotion I'd had that morning. That morning I had been reading from Genesis 3. Now we all know Genesis 3. In fact, why don't you open up to Genesis 3? Genesis 3 is the chapter on the fall. And I remember that morning I had been reading about the fall, and that's the place where we know, I remember since Sunday school times, that's the place where everything went wrong. But there are two little verses there in Genesis 3 that I remember reading that morning that suddenly jumped into my mind again. And those two little verses are verse 8 and 9. Open up your Bible and let's read Genesis 3, verse 8 and 9. It says this, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to man, Where are you? Seemingly insignificant but hugely significant. Why? Well, take a look at these two verses. What does this suggest about God? Well, we see here that he's in the garden. He's walking. That suggests that this God here is in the same location as man. He's calling out to man, which suggests that there is a communication between God and man. Now, suddenly I looked at these two verses. I said, why didn't I bring these two verses into my discussion that afternoon? In fact, as I look at these verses, I realize these two little verses here are enormously significant for almost everything we're going to talk about Islam. Why? The reason why is it tells me who my God is, it tells me who I am, it tells me what it was like, what has gone wrong, and what needs to be rectified. Now, you might say I might be putting too much into just two little verses. We call that eisegesis. I will stand corrected if I'm wrong. But bear with me. What I'm going to do is I'm going to use these two little verses, and I'm going to use them as my key, as my 
hermeneutical key. That means my key for interpreting the rest of Scripture. Scripture, because I believe these verses are foundational for everything we're going to talk about from here on out with Muslims. It's my key for helping Muslims understand why is it we are not talking about the same God? Why is it we're not talking about the same people as humans? We're not talking about the same sin or salvation or any other thing. These two little verses are going to help me explain that. And I'm going to do that in the next hour with you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to look at 13 different areas. We're going to look at each of these areas that both Christianity and Islam agree upon. And then we're going to look, apply this key, these two verses, to each one of those 13 areas to see if it fits. Now, to do that, we're going to have to look at the Quran itself. And so we're going to use the Quranic version, the Quranic story, because in the Quran you do find the same story. You do find the story of the Garden of Eden. It's found in Surah 2, Ayah 30 to 39, in Surah 7, Ayah 19 to 25, and in Surah 20, Ayah 116 to 123. So, Surah 2, Surah 7, and Surah 20. But when you look at the story here, you will see that there are many similarities, but there's one flagrant difference. These two little verses are not in this story. Okay, let's go ahead and apply this, and let's go and let's start with the Garden of Eden. Let's go ahead and look at both the Garden of Eden in the Bible and in the Quran. The Garden of Eden in the, in the Bible is a garden, as it suggests. It's a garden on earth. Now, what I'm going to do, I'm going to do something special here, and let's see if we can do this. I'm going to make you people Christians, all right? Now, you're already Christians, so that's not a problem. I want to hear you say, Jesus is Lord. Okay, come on, do it with conviction. Okay, now I'm going to make you people Muslims. As much as you may not like it, for the next hour, you're going to be Muslims, all right? And I want to hear you say, Allahu Akbar. Akbar. Oh, come on, a little louder than that. Akbar. All right, pretty good. And as you go on, you're not going to be so encouraging because as we go on, I'm sure you're going to start getting depressed. It happens every time. Don't worry. We will convert you back at the end. But I'm going to do this to basically show you how this works. I'm going to do this because you need to see visually exactly how both Christianity and Islam are talking right past each other. We do not have the same definitions. If we do not have the defini same definitions, we need to start getting back and helping the Muslims with our definition. Okay, let's start. And I'm going to start with the Muslims this time. Let's start with your Garden of Eden. Your Garden of Eden actually is not on earth. Your Garden of Eden is up in space. According to the Quran, it's not on earth, it's in space. It's very similar to our Garden of Eden in that it's a garden and there is trees there. Adama and Awa, Adam and Eve, are in that garden. They're told by Allah not to eat of a certain tree, much like our story. But they do eat of that tree. They are condemned for that. And then once they are condemned, then they are forgiven. Then a very curious thing happens. After they are forgiven, then they are thrown out of that garden. Now, that's hugely significant later on. We'll come back to that. So the first thing we can see that's different about our two gardens is that the Muslim garden is up in space, whereas the Christian garden or the biblical garden is on earth, is it not? It's much the same story in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It is a garden, especially in Genesis 2 and 3, it's a garden on earth, Adam and Eve are in that garden. They're told not to eat of a certain tree. That's the tree that they do eat of. And when they do eat of that, they are condemned. But more than that, once they are condemned, then they are thrown out of the garden. So let's take a look now and let's ask, what about God himself? Well, let's go back to these two little verses because these verses are fascinating. Because what they tell me, these two little verses, is that this is a God 
who comes down, according to the biblical story, he comes down and he is walking and talking in the cool of the day. He's a God that limits himself and comes down to the garden. And the garden he comes down to is a garden that's on earth. That means he comes and he enters time and space. He is on earth walking and talking, is he not? According to Genesis 3, verse 8 and 9. So he's a God that limits himself. A God that comes to, to us, comes down to our level. More than that, he's walking and talking in the cool of the day. It looks like he's been doing this probably every day. So he's a God that comes and does this regularly. And he's calling out to Adam and Eve, where are you? Now hold on a minute. Why did he have to call out to Adam and Eve, where are you? Is he, is he not omniscient? Did he not know where Adam and Eve were? Of course he did. So why is he calling, where are you? Well, the reason he's calling, where are you, is because he wants Adam and Eve to respond. So here's a God that comes down, walks and talks, comes to our level, and then wants us re to respond to him. Now, immediately we see something that's categorically different from your God. Your God, Allah. Your God does not come to the garden. Your God is totally other. Your God is transcendent. Your God is totally distant. Your God never comes to earth. Muslims many times come up to me and they say, listen, we're talking about the same God. We are both talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I always ask them one very simple question. If you believe we're talking about the same God, then you, ask, you answer me one very simple question. Does your God come to earth? If he cannot come to earth, if he never has come to earth, if you refuse to let him come to earth, he is not the God that I see in this book. Because the God I see in this book not only comes to earth, he did so at the very beginning. He's done so all the way through history. We're talking about two different gods. Now that's foundational for everything we're going to talk about next. These two little verses tell me that this God limits himself. These two little verses tell me that God comes and participates with us. These two little verses tell me that God is in relationship with us. There it is, folks. The God of the Bible is in relationship with his creation. The God of Islam has no relationship, not one that's reciprocal. It's a one-way relationship. We'll get back to that. Let's go to the next category, which is the whole problem of the Trinity. Now, the Trinity has always been a problematic theology for Muslims. They do not understand what we mean by it. Christians have a hard time defending it, let alone defining it. And I think one of the difficulties we have is because most of us don't talk much about the Trinity. How many people, you view Christians, came to the Lord because of the Trinity? None of us. Rarely do you find anybody that becomes a Christian because of the Trinity. Usually you find about it afterwards, don't you? You find about it when you're in school or, I'm sorry, Bible school or maybe Sunday school or at church. So it's not something that we preach about. Not many ministers preach about the Trinity on a given Sunday. So therefore, we don't really define it that well. And that's unfortunate because it's one of the first questions I know you Muslims like to ask us. In fact, Muslims always come up to me and say, if the Trinity is so important to you, then why can't you find it in your Bible? Where is that word? You won't find it in the Bible. It never was written in the Bible. It's basically a theological term that was coined by a church father called Tertullian in the late 2nd century. He was he that put the word tri-unity, and maybe that's the better way to say it, tri-unity. So Muslims always say, well, if it's such an important word, it should be in your Bible, because it defines your God. Tri-unity. Three in one. Well, let me ask you Muslims, what's the word that defines your God? One. Tawheed. Right? That's the word that defines your God, Tawheed. So try to find Tawheed in the Quran. 
you're not going to find it. Bingo, you've got the same problem. If it's the word that defines your God as one, then why can't you find it in the Quran? Again, it's a theological term to define who your God is. He is one and only one. Now, that's going to be problematic for you. Because you have names about your God, do you not? You give 99 names to your God. Take a look at those names. In fact, look at the three most important names that you give your God. Rahman, Al-Rahim, Al-Wadud. Al-Rahman is the compassionate one. Al-Rahim is the merciful one. Al-Wadud is the loving one, right? You'll find over 25 times that this is repeated in your Quran, proving it's the most important name for your God. Let me ask you one real simple question. Compassionate, merciful, and loving, by definition, do they not require an object? Yes, they do. You have to be compassionate to someone. You have to be merciful to someone. You have to be loving to someone, right? Otherwise, they make no sense. So if these are your God's eternal names, if these are the names that have always been with him, that define him, then where was the object of his compassion or love or mercy before we were created? Before Adam and Eve existed, where was that compassion? Where was that love? Can you see the problem for Muslims? Basically, what you're telling me is that your God requires us to do basically to name himself. Until we were created, those names meant nothing. They didn't exist. Let me ask you Christians. Is your God compassionate? Yes. Merciful? Yes. Loving? Absolutely. Has God, your God always been merciful, compassionate, loving? Absolutely. Within the triune Godhead, God the Father, always loving God the Son, always loving God the Holy Spirit. The three of them have always been in communion. In fact, that's how they relate themselves, within the Godhead, eternally. Which means these names are, have always existed. Now, here's the greatest thing about it. We know in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, that we were created in God's image. If we are created in God's image, that means that we also reflect His imageness in us, including compassion, mercy, and love are reflected in us as humans. You agree also that humans are merciful, compassionate, and love, but then where do you get it from if your God cannot, does not have those capacities? We know where we get it from because we're made in His image. It comes out of our God. It comes out of the Godhead. It's always been. So if we're created in His image, then it stands to reason that we reflect who our God is in us. Now, here's a curious thing. You Muslims tell me that you are loving, compassionate, and certainly you would like to see that, and I see it in your families. But I look at your families, and I take a look at your fathers who have complete control over your families. And when your father dies, the oldest brother takes on that, that, uh, takes on that role. Almost like a dictator. Doesn't that reflect the kind of God you serve? Your God who is just one, a monad? Who, though you call him loving, it's a conditional love, isn't it? Yes, it is. Allah is only loving to those who first love him. Is your God conditioned in his love? Absolutely not. There's the beauty of the God of the Bible. He is unconditionally loving, and we see that probably best exemplified in the prodigal son of the prodigal son. Remember that great, great story that Jesus told. And he says that when the son took his inheritance and went off to a far land and squandered his inheritance, what did the father do? Did the father reject his son? Absolutely not. 
The father stayed there every day at his doorway, looking the distance for the son to come home. And when he saw the son in the distance, he ran to the son, hugged the son, brought him home, and he had a feast. That's unconditional love. There's the example of what Christ was trying to show us of what God's love is like. It is unconditional, not like the Muslim God. Your God doesn't do that. Oh, he says he's merciful, he says he's compassionate, but where has he ever shown mercy and compassion to those who don't love him? Suddenly we're seeing two different gods. And the triunity of God suddenly makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I love the triunity of God. Because suddenly if God is triune, that means he's relational. And if he's relational, then I'm relational. Because I'm made in his image. Suddenly now I understand why families are relational. Why fathers love sons. Why mothers love daughters. Now I understand why communities are relational. Because it all comes from the imageness of my God. And only the biblical God can say that. The Muslim God can't. But I know you're relational. You're relational, and yet you're borrowing something you have no right to borrow. You've got to come home. You've got to come home to the God of the Bible if you really want to understand where your relationships come from, where your love, where your mercy comes from. And it's more than that. Take a look at your society, at your culture. Look at your kingdoms based on rigid, are they not, rules and regulations, which takes us into the next category, humanity. As humans, who are you before your God? You are Abdullahs, right? That's the most common name that is given to boys. Abdul. Abdullah, slave of God. Isn't that what you are? You're slaves of God. Every Muslim is a slave of God. The most common name given to little boys is Abdul Rahim or Abdul Rahman. Every time you say Abdul and then one of the 99 names of God, there is a slave of God. And it defines who you are. Look at your religion. What does Islam mean? It means to be in obedience, does it not? It means to be in submission. That's what slaves do. Slaves obey. Slaves submit. So basically, who you are before your God is nothing more than a slave. You are a slave to your God. Are you slaves to God? No, you're not. You're children of God, aren't you? Oh, now let's do a comparison. So you're children of God and you're slaves of God. You're children of God. Children, by definition, assumes a relationship. But slaves assume a relationship too. But take a look at the difference in relationship. Let me ask you Muslims. Can you, as a slave of God, can you talk to your master? No. Can you talk to your father? Daddy. We even call him daddy. Abba in Greek. Uh, don't we do that in the Old, in New Testament? We call him Abba. Daddy. You can talk to your father all the time, can't you? Can you um, argue with your master as a slave? Absolutely not. Can you, as a child of God, Yes, you can. Can you criticize your master? No. Can you criticize your God? Certainly you can. Just like a son can criticize his father. Listen, I have three sons. I know what it's like. They criticize me all the time. I'm used to it. We allow them. Why? Because I, as a father, model myself on God the Father. And look at Abraham when he criticized God. Oh, all the way through, there's examples of men of God who have criticized God. We do so even today. Can you reject your God? Absolutely not. On pain of death, right? You were given three days to repent, and if you don't repent, you are executed. According to your traditions. Can you reject God? Of course you can. Of course you can. You have to pay the consequences at the end of life, but you certainly can reject God. There's nothing in the scriptures that says that we can execute you. God will let you go freely, as a, a loving father would. Like the prodigal son, let his son go. 
He let him go. He waited for him, but he did not, he did not ever reject his son. Can you see the difference? We're talking about two different paradigms. We're talking about two different gods. And because we're talking about two different gods, we're talking about basically two different humanities. Wow, suddenly I'm already liking this one over here better. I know it's hard. It's difficult. You're going to have to remain Muslims a little bit longer because we still want to go through the next categories. Let's go to the next one. Now can you understand why sin, sin makes a huge difference between Christianity and Islam? For the Muslims, what is your sin? Well, According to your scriptures, sin is nothing more than basically not keeping the great. See, in Islam, you have, uh, since God, Allah, is your master and you are nothing but slaves, slaves are to obey. They are to submit. What are they to obey? What are they to submit? They are to submit to the rules and regulations. You've got your whole litany of laws, what we call fiqh. You have the Hanbali laws. You have the Hanbali school, the Hanafi school, the Shafi school, the Maliki school. These are all the different schools of law of which you must submit to. We know them under umbrella called Sharia law. Is that not correct? And it tells you how, what you're to do for every area of life. How you're dressed, how you're to wear your hair, how long a beard you're to grow, what to name your children. And you name it in every area, whether it's social, whether it's economical, whether it's political, whether it's judicial, in every area, your laws tell you how you're to live. And you're to live as the prophet lived. And this is what I would expect from a master to a slave. That's what Islam is. It is to obey. That is what your, basically your function in life is to do. As a slave, that's all you do. And when you don't do that, then you sin. And that's how you define sin. Sin is not keeping the law. Sin is not keeping the grade. In fact, you are given two angels when you are born. One angel that sits on the shoulder, another angel that sits on the shoulder. Is that not correct? They are called recording angels. And what do they do? They record, they record all your good deeds on the shoulder and all your bad deeds on the shoulder. And that is basically what you're trying to do. You're trying to get off the bad deeds and trying to get good deeds. You're trying to work off these sins. Sin, basically, is keeping those grades, eradicating those sins, and putting as much barakah, good deeds, barakah as they call it, as you call it. Is that what sin is? They have no idea what we're talking about. They have no idea of what sin is. You have no idea of the enormity of sin, because you have no idea what you've lost. You have to come back to Genesis 2 and 3 to see what sin has done. See, Genesis 2 and 3 gives us a good image of what Garden of Eden was like. It was a perfect environment, wasn't it? There was a perfect relationship between man and the beast. Man named the beast. There was a perfect relationship between man and his environment. There was no thorns. There was no thistles. Women had no childbirth pain. Man got his food freely from the, from the, from the trees. There was a perfect relationship between man and woman. Man and woman, they were naked. They knew nothing was wrong. But most importantly, there was a perfect relationship between man and God. There was God walking and talking in the cool of the day. There was a relationship there, a perfect relationship. They were in each, uh, each other's presence. But then they ate of that fruit. One bite, that's all it took. I know there's a song that's all that, about that. One bite of one piece of fruit. That's why I hate fruit today. That's my own problem. But can you see the difficulty here? It only took one sin. And look what happened. With that one bite of that one fruit, everything was impaired. No longer could that relationship between man and beast be the same. No longer could that relationship between man and his environment. Now there were thorns, there were thistles, there were childbirth pains for women. Now man now had to work the ground to get his food. Man and woman realized they were naked. They quickly clothed themselves. That relationship between man and woman was destroyed. But most importantly, most importantly, am I correct? Man had to be thrown out of God's presence. Why? 
Because Habakkuk 1.13 says it very clearly. God cannot look upon sin. God cannot have sin in his presence. He is such a holy God. He dare not even have one sin in his presence. Psalm 77, Psalm 99 say much the same thing. If you go back there, you'll see that sin separates us from God. We see that in Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. That's what sin does. You have no idea what sin has done because you have no idea what was there. See, you don't know what was lost because in your garden, God wasn't there. And if God was not in your garden, you have no idea of the enormity of what sin has done. Sin has destroyed that relationship, thrown us out of God's presence. Oh, I know you Muslims don't like that. You always tell me, hold on a minute, Mr. Smith. How could that sin of one man and one woman impute on all of us? Oh, Muslims tell me all that, that, that all the time. And now we're getting into the next category, atonement. Because we need to bring back, we need to get back to that environment. We need to get back to that relationship. Something has to be done so that can be rectified. And we know that in the, in the Quran, there is no even idea of this because you don't believe there should be any atonement because there's no sin that is imputed on you. You believe that that was Adam and Eve's sin alone, right? So there's no need for atonement, right? Yeah, of course. You tell me that all the time. Yet let me take you back to your story again. Go back to Surah 2. Go back to Surah 7 and go back to Surah 20. When Adam and Eve were forgiven for the sin, what happened next? They were thrown out of the garden, right? That garden, which is up in space, they were thrown down to earth. According to some traditions, they were thrown down to Mecca. So don't tell me that we were not imputed with sin, because the fact that you're sitting here in this room, the fact that you're not up in that garden, the fact that none of us are up in that garden, the fact that all of humanity is here on earth, proves to me that even in the Quranic story, we're all imputed with Adam and Eve's sin. You may not like the idea of original sin, but you've got a problem. Because your Quran stipulates in Surah 6, in Surah 6, Ayah 164, and in Surah 53, Ayah 38, it's very clear that nobody can take on the guilt of another. Everybody is responsible for their own sin. It's very clear there in your Quran. Yet we are all taking on the guilt of Adam and Eve, whether you like it or not. We're not in the Garden of Eden. We know that because we're not up in space. <laughs> I know it's hard and I cannot, I've never seen a Muslim that can answer me on that. And I find it fascinating that these two stories contradict each other. And I think what has happened is that Islam has taken the story of the Garden of Eden without understanding its most essential meaning. You cannot borrow a story like that out of the Jewish scriptures, out of our scriptures, change it at will, and take God out of the picture and then understand what happened next. We know exactly what happened next. We, of course, know that because we see the consequences of that, don't we? All of us were imputed with that sin. One sin is all it took. We know that the wages of sin is death. It's very clear the consequences of sin is death. We see that in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, and in Romans 6, 23. Therefore, in order to be expiated, there needs to be an atonement. That we see in Leviticus 4. In fact, there are 79 times in the Old Testament that talks about atonement. 79 times showing how important it is. Sin separates and atonement redeems. Atonement, in order to get atonement, according to the Bible, it's very specific. It has to be blood. There has to be a death. Blood has to be shed. We see that very clearly in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, and in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 22. 
It is demanded there by Abraham in Genesis 22. And it's fulfilled in Hebrews 9, verse 12 and 14, verse 26 to 27, and in Hebrews 10, verse 10. But what is interesting to me is that Muslims have not gone back to the scriptures to see how the whole sacrificial system, which was to inaugurate this atonement, the sacrificial system, which was to point everybody to what was going to happen, this whole sacrificial system, which we see inaugurated there in Genesis 15, tells us enormously about how it's going to be done. You Muslims need to come back to our scriptures. You need to read Genesis 15. Because in Genesis 15 is when the inauguration of the whole sacrificial system that you're still practicing today, take a look at what happened back then. God did something very special. He used a model of, that Abraham would have known. He used a model of covenant that was well known in the Euphrates Valley in Mesopotamia where Abraham came from. And he told Abraham to, to basically to take three animals and three birds. Did he not? And he told Abraham to, to kill those animals and to kill those birds and then to split them and put them on a rock, which Abraham did. Now, according to the Mesopotamian custom that Abraham was familiar with, both parties were then to walk through between the two animals, between the blood of the two animals. The blood of the two animals then bound them in covenant. And it would be a covenant between the two parties. Abraham did that. Killed the birds, separated them and the, and the animals. And then God put him to sleep. God put Abraham to sleep. It was God that went through the animals as a firing brand. Abraham never went between those animals. Abraham never went between those birds. Only God went through. That was the initiation of the whole sacrificial system. God was showing us, showing Abraham, and showing anybody that's willing to read that scripture that this was something only God can do. This covenant man could not do. This covenant only he who was sinned against could do. This covenant could only be done by God himself. The sacrificial system was based on that principle. And all the way through then, God gave us little tags of how it was going to be done. In fact, I would find it fascinating that right there, right there in the same scenario where he condemned Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, he then turns towards Eve. You're going to be my Eve. And he says to Eve, from your line, someone, he, third person singular, it's going to be a man, it's going to be a human, from Eve's line, he is going to come and crush Satan's head, and Satan's going to bruise his heel. When you crush your head, you've destroyed it. There is the first prophecy of what God was going to do, and he does it in the same scenario that he condemns Adam and Eve. He then supplies a solution. Now, we didn't, at that time, there's no way to know that he was going to be that solution, but he was already saying, it's going to be a man. It's going to come from the line of Eve. Isaiah then really helps us out. Isaiah, in chapter 7, verse 14, then puts a lot more body to the story. Now, you need to listen to this because this is, this is interesting. According to what Isaiah says in chapter 7, verse 14, he said, This will be a sign. A virgin will conceive. Now, hold on a minute. Do you believe a virgin has ever conceived? Is it possible for a virgin to conceive? Absolutely not. It's physically impossible. It's biologically impossible. So this is a pretty special sign when a virgin conceived. You know that as well because in your Quran, it says the same thing, doesn't it? That a virgin will conceive. So a virgin will conceive, it says in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. A virgin will conceive and bear a son, not a daughter, but a son. That's the sign we're to look for. Muslims as well. Christians were to look for that sign. We know where that sign came. In fact, we know when it happened. A virgin did conceive. You know in Islam that the only virgin that has ever conceived is Mary. Mary, mother of Jesus, mother of Issa. 
A virgin was going to conceive, bear a son, and he shall be called. And here's the definition of what he was going to come to do. Emmanuel, God with us. There it is. Fascinating, isn't it, how God puts it all together. Gives us little tags all the way through the scripture. Shows us exactly what he's going to do through these little tags. The atonement is going to happen. Blood is going to be shed. It was going to be done by this person who is going to be in the line of Eve. And we know from Isaiah that it will be a son who comes from a virgin. We should not be surprised when 2,000 years ago, as you know and as we know, that a virgin did conceive. His name was Jesus. His name defines what he was going to come to do. He's Jesus, which means he was going to come to save. He was the anointed one, the Messiah. He was going to have the title of Messiah. He was going to be called the Son of God. He was going to be called the Son of Man. We know that where that's defined, because that's also in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, where the Son of Man is going to be from everlasting to everlasting. He's going to have dominion over all tribes, nations, peoples, and tongues. Only God could have a title like that. And yet that's the title that Jesus claimed for himself more than any other. We know that it all came to pass because of of what was said at the very beginning in Genesis 3, verse 15. Now, let's move on. Incarnation. In order for a virgin to conceive and God to be Emmanuel with us, he's going to have to become a man. Well, he already said that to Eve, that it was going to be a man. So it should not surprise us that a man is going to come. But it's not going to be just any man. Now, Muslims have a hard time with that. I know you don't like this, and it bothers you to no end to understand that there was a God that became a man because you don't believe that God could ever become a man because you know that if God were to become a man, you believe he would corrupt himself because we're corrupted. We're imperfect. And for God to come down and become a man, he would be imperfect. Who says God would be imperfect if he became a man? I find it fascinating, you Muslims, always telling God what he can and cannot do. You say that God is omnipotent, do you not? Yeah, you tell me all the time he's omnipotent. You tell me he's omniscient, he knows everything. You tell me he's omnipresent, he's everywhere. And yet then you get have the audacity to tell me that he can't become a man. Hold on, stop and think of how basically illogical that is. If God can do anything, why can't he become a man? Why is that such a problem for Muslims? You know he can become a man, can't he? Of course he can become a man. My God is big enough to become a man. If he created all of us, he can certainly participate in his creation. Yes? Please, of course. Please, Muslims, don't tell God that he can't become a man. You're telling God one of the easiest things in the world for him to do. Of course he can become a man. He can take on our form anytime he wants. He did so at the very beginning. That was God that was walking and talking. He was walking with legs. He was talking with a mouth. He was coming and he was communicating. He was relating to man from the very beginning. If he did it at the very beginning, he could do it all the way through history. We, knew, we know that that was God that was there in front of the tent of Mamre having supper with Abraham. He was eating with Abraham. That was God that was wrestling with Jacob, was it not? That was God, in fact that was there in front of the Israelites as they were coming through the desert. He was appeared to them as a pillar of fire at nighttime and as a pillar of cloud during the day. That was God that was on that pillar. And here's the interesting thing. Muslims, though you may not like this, even in your Quran, your Quran admits that God, Allah, did come to earth. In Surah 20, take a look at it. In Surah 20, Ayah 14 and 15, you will see that that is God, Allah. In fact, he speaks from within the bush. Let's just open up to real quickly. Quickly, Surah 20. In fact, let's, you need to start with verse 11. In fact, you need to start with verse 10. Musa is speaking. He says, I saw a fire. So he says, wait for me. I'm going to go and look at that fire. Verse 11. And when he came to the fire, he was called by name, O Musa. 
Verily, verse 12, I am your Lord. So take off your shoes. You are on a sacred valley. And I have chosen you. So listen to that which will be revealed. Verse 14. Verily, I am Allah. So worship me and per perform the asalat, perform the prayers. That's Allah speaking. Even you've got a problem here. If you don't believe that God can enter time and space, what are you going to do with Surah 20, Ayah 14? Where Allah is in a burning bush. Allah is in a bush that's on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is on earth. He's in the presence of Moses. I'm not going to answer that because that shows that there's an imperfection in the Quran itself. There shows that there's an internal contradiction. There's a lot of these internal contradictions. We're not here to talk about that tonight. What we're here to talk about is that God, certainly the biblical God, can enter time and space. The Quranic God does not like to enter time and space, but ironically does enter time and space in Surah 20. You've got a problem. I'll let you deal with that later. You can talk to your imams, and so you can try to argue it amongst yourself. Let's get back then to what did happen 2,000 years ago. We know that God can come to earth. Hasn't? We have no problem with that. Why? Because our Bible tells us so. Our Bible is very clear that God can come to earth. He's big enough. He's, got to, he's big enough to enter time and space. He impacts on human history all the way through history. He's done so. He will continue to do so. Thank God he did so. Thank God he did at the very beginning so that when he came 2,000 years ago, I don't have a problem with it. I know he came to earth. It's good to know he came to earth, isn't it? Because he basically fulfilled exactly what he told Eve. It was going to be God. What he told Abraham when he instituted the whole sacrificial system. It's going to be God that's going to do that. What he told Isaiah when Isaiah said that this person will be Emmanuel, God with us, and will come from a virgin. He was basically, if you look at the Old Testament, there's over 300 prophecies that speak about who that man is going to be. Prophecies like Micah 5 2 that said he was going to be born in Bethlehem. Prophecies that spoke about the fact that he would die between two robbers, that none of his bones would be broken, that he would be buried in a rich man's grave. There are so many prophecies that talk about that one man. There's no reason in the world we should be surprised that God did come to fulfill what he had promised to Adam and Eve at the very beginning. It was he that was going to come to do that. Why? Because my revelation tells me, and I believe it. Now, revelation is always also a problem with you. Why? Because for you, your revelation is very much like your God. Your God is totally other, is he not? He's totally dominable. Therefore, he is totally in authority. And therefore, he is nothing more than a master, much like your revelation. And so your revelation basically is only twofold. There's only two forms of revelation that you can accept. One we call general revelation, which means when you look around you at the creation, you look at the sophistication within nature, it suggests that there's a creator. That we call general revelation. We agree with that as well, don't we as Christians, that God does reveal himself in nature. But God has a problem if he's up in, earth, up in heaven all the time. If he never comes to earth outside of Surah 20, I have 14, but if he never comes to earth, how is he going to relate to his creation? What's he going to do? How is, what's he going to use? Well, he's got to use intermediaries. And we see that Islam has borrowed a system that has come straight out of Aristotelian thought, Aristotelian philosophy, that was interesting because it's the Aristotelian, Arist Aristotle's writings and Plato's writings and Socrates' writings were translated by you people. It is the Muslims that give us Aristotle. We would not know about any of the Greek philosophers had not the Muslims translated, which seemed to suggest that maybe you borrowed some of their philosophy because it's very clear that Aristotle believed that God was up here, man was down here, neither the twain could meet, so therefore God is dependent on these demiurges to go back and forth to give his revelation to man. 
That's exactly how Islam believes its theology, doesn't it? You have Allah up here, man down here. Allah never talks to man. He uses demiurges. And who are these demiurges? You call them Rasulullahs or you call them Nabis, prophets. Well, we also have prophets. God uses prophets, does he not? That's what we call special revelation. So general revelation, special revelation. Is that the only way God reveals himself? That's the only way that you can allow God to reveal himself because you don't like God coming to earth. But we believe God can come to earth. And isn't the best way to reveal yourself is to come yourself? Isn't that the best way to communicate is to be there in presence? Exactly. So the best way for God to come and tell us who he is is to come himself. And that's exactly what he did 2,000 years ago. He came for 2,000 years ago and spent 33 years on earth basically to show us who he was. That's what we call personal revelation. But see, that happened 2,000 years ago. And I might say, hold on a minute, how do I trust it? I wasn't there. I didn't really see God face to face. Well, see, our God doesn't leave us alone. As a personal God who wants to relate, us, relate to us on a personal level, as a relational God that we see right there, uh, basically revealing himself there in Genesis 3, he wants to continue to reveal himself. So when Jesus left, what did he say in John 14 and John 16? I am leaving, but I am leaving behind the parakletos. The counselor, right? It's the counselor who's going to continue to reveal himself, to continue to open up scripture for us, to help us to understand who God is, what he's saying. Now, that's ongoing revelation. Personal revelation and ongoing revelation, which you can't understand because your God doesn't do that. Your God always stays other. Beautiful, isn't it? We're talking about two different gods, two different revelations, two different humanities, two different sins, and two different salvations. Can we go on beyond that? Yes, we can. Let's go to predestination. <laughs> predestination, I always thought, was where you were when you missed the train. But according to Islam, it's a lot more than that. Predestination for Islam is basically every action you do. Every action you do, every thought you make is predestined by your God. Your God controls every facet of life, does he not? Yes, he does. So he predestines every one of your acts. Well, that's what I would expect a master to a slave. A master does that. He tells the slave to do everything, just like a puppet or just like a robot. You're nothing more than a puppet or robot. And that's why whenever we have an agreement, what is the first thing you do? You always say, Inshallah, if God wills it. And you have to say that because it's not your will, it's God's will, whether or not you're going to get whatever you're going to do done. Now, do we believe in predestination? Yeah, we have predestination in Christianity. But the only context that it's ever used in the context of salvation and it's a healthy debate within Christendom whether or not God predestines salvation or there is free will. And that's an ongoing debate that will continue, I think, till God comes and rectifies it or tells us the truth. But what is good about that is that it's only done in that context. No one, certainly I hope none of you believe that every one of your actions or every one of your thoughts is predestined by God. No, there's no way we believe that because God has made us in his image. And if he's made us in his image, he gives us all the capacities God has. And if God has the free will to choose, so do we have that free will to choose. Otherwise, all the stories that Jesus talked about of the prodigal son having a free will to leave his father make no sense. Yes, we're given choice. We're given free will. We are not puppets. No, not a God who loves us, a God who's our father, and we are his sons and daughters. If we are his children, then we have all the capacity to choose or to reject. Let's move on to the next area of theocracy. Now we're kind of come full circle. This is where we started out with. This is where the whole discussion began. Back there 
in London when I was having that discussion with my Muslim friends. Theocracy. For the Muslims, your theocracy is sacrosanct. You are basically, your whole volition in life is to create that khilafah, that Islamic state. Is that not right? You are here put on earth to create that Islamic state, which is run by Sharia law, with God up here and you as nothing more than slaves, basically submitting and obeying everything he tells you to do. And if you don't do it, certainly that is sin. But more than that, you want to make sure that that khilafah is world-encompassing. And that's why we're seeing that happening as we speak. That khilafah starting to grow now. That khilafah, which was instituted with Muhammad back in 622, then was eradicated in 1924 by Kamal Ataturk there in Turkey, now wants to be reinstated again. And you're working hard to bring that khilafah. And I remember, as I say, as I talk to my Muslim friends, thank God I don't have a khilafah like that. What's our kingdom like? Is it like that? Rules, regulations? No, where's our kingdom? Can you see it? Is it any place? Is it America? Is it Britain? Is it Europe? No, it is no place. I did a debate with uh, Sheikh Omar Bakri Muhammad back in 1999 in London, and we asked this very question. And he, Sheikh Omar Bakri, is the leader of the most radical party there in Britain, the Mahajudun Party. And he defined the Khilafah for us, and it took about an hour for him to go through what the Khilafah would look like in Britain. And then he turned to me and says, Okay, Mr. Smith, where's your Khilafah? Now, there was about a thousand radical Muslims in the, in, the, in the auditorium at that night, and I could only get 300 Christians to come in. They just did not want to come to a debate. And then I did something even more embarrassing to them. I asked, I want all the Christians now to raise your hands. No, they didn't want to raise their hands in front of all those radical Muslims. They just would not raise their hands. I said, come on, get your hands up there. And so I had all the Christians raise their hand. And then I said to the Sheikh, now I want to show you where my kingdom is. The kingdom of God is right here. One, two, three. There it is, Sheikh. One, two, three. There it is again. See, in the Bible, Jesus said, where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am with you. That's the kingdom of God. It's not a place, it's people. There you are. The kingdom of God's right in this room. Wherever you see a raised hand, that's the kingdom of God. It's people in relationship with their God. It's not a place. It's not a building. It's not a country. It has no boundaries. It has no frontiers. It has no ambassadors, no flag, nothing, no army to protect it. Because we are in relationship with God. That is the kingdom. And what's more, I said to the sheikh, whenever you look and see the last 2,000 years of our history, it's when we didn't have this kind of kingdom. Because whenever we had this kind of kingdom is when we were separated from God, when we used our own securities to try to secure ourselves. It's when we get rid of all those securities and become totally dependent on God. Then you will see our kingdom at its greatest. That's the genius of this kind of kingdom. It's a kingdom not based on strength. It's a kingdom based on weakness. Why? Because when we are weak, then we depend on God. Then you cannot do anything to us. That's why we grow fastest when you persecute us. That's why I said to the Sheikh, come to this country and you will probably see the church grow faster than at any other time. As much as that sounds illogical, that's exactly how the kingdom works. It works in persecution. It worked in the first 300 years there after Christ. That's when the church was at its best. That's the kingdom of God. It's not a place. It's a people. We are the kingdom of God. Oh, it was great. He did not know what to do. Then I said to the people, I want all you Muslims to look at those people who are raising their hand, which made them feel even more uncomfortable. I want you to go to them and talk to them. And I want you to ask how they live, because there you will see how the kingdom is lived. It's lived out by people. Ask them how they act. Ask them what they do when they get hurt. Ask them what they do when they feel secure. Ask them who they go to when they need security. It's not to the caliph, it's not to the judge, it's not to the police, it's not to the army, it's to Jesus Christ. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit, it is through that power that we live.
That's the kingdom worked out. Totally two different paradigms. One based on rules and regulations, a place, another based on a relationship. Beautiful, isn't it? Now let's continue on with the spirit world and prayer. And let's look at them and kind of put them together because in some ways they are very similar. See, for you, the spirit world is a problem. You don't know what to do with that intermediary part. God's up here, man's down here. What are you going to do with all that in between? What are you going to do with all the evil spirits? Islam doesn't have an answer for that. Oh, you do have some characters called jinn. Now, who are these jinn made out of fire? Are they angelic? Are they... Do they belong in heaven or do they belong on earth? No, your jinn are up in space. In fact, whenever you look at nighttime, when you see these meteorites going across the sky... According to the Quran, the reason why those meteorites are there is that they're chasing the jinn away because the jinn are trying to listen to the Quran being repeated, being recited up in heaven. And these meteorites are there to chase them away, which seems rather odd because if jinn are inanimate, how can an animate meteorite chase them away? It'd go right through them. It wouldn't make any problem with them. I'm not going to get into that tonight. What I want to know is, what are you going to do with those intermediary areas? Because you've got a difficulty here because you have nothing in your Quran to help you with the evil spirits. And that's why if you look in your world, the more you live, further away you lead, get away from Saudi Arabia, the more you get into what we call folk Islam, these, these amulets and these, these strings around the waist with, with little Quranic verses, the Fatima's hand or the evil eye, to ward off these evil spirits because you don't know what to do. There's no theology. Your God hasn't helped you with these evil spirits. Our God has, hasn't he? We know exactly what to do with these intermediary areas. Jesus Christ spent much of his ministry chasing them out. We don't have to worry about them. We've got the Holy Spirit, who's a lot more powerful. My God does not leave me hanging. My God, who loves me, my God, who's a father to me, already gives me the power to deal with evil spirits. That's what I would expect a loving God to do, a God who's relational. He gives me evil spirits, but he throws them out. He doesn't give me, excuse me. He shows me how I can deal with these evil spirits, and it is he that's going to do it, not me, myself. Now let's go to prayer. <laughs> prayer. You do it five times a day, don't you? You get up, come down to your haunches, go down to the ground, hit your head, come back up to your haunches, you come stand up again, and that's one rock. Maybe you do it twice, maybe you do it three times. Only five times a day. That's all you're required to do. Five times a day. The same ritual prayer every day, day in and day out. Why do you do it? Well, the reason you do it is because you're told to do it. And as a slave, you have no other option. It's to basically to gain baraka, to gain blessing, isn't it? So you gain blessing by doing these five prayers. There's no relationship in it. Well, there is, actually. It's told you're, you're obedient. You're obedient and you're submitting. That's what a slave does. That's why you do the prayers. That's why you do the hajj. That's why you do the Ramadan fast. That's why you pay your zakat. In fact, that's why you do all the five pillars. You do them all out of submission. Is that why we do prayers? No, not at all. We don't do prayers because we are basically submitting or in obedience. We do prayers because we want to talk to God, don't we? We want to basically tell him what's problem is. We want to tell him what's wrong. We want our help. In fact, sometimes when he does help us, we want to praise him, don't we? So we pray any time of the day, not just five times a day, and not just towards one direction, towards Mecca like you all do, seeming to suggest that God only stays in that one area. We can pray to God in any direction, can't we? Our God's everywhere. He's right in this room. We can pray right now and he's listening to us. At any time, for any reason, we can pray to God, which suggests to me a relationship. But then we're talking about a relational God. In fact, when we pray, we know God's going to listen, and he's going to respond to our prayer. Now, you don't have a response. Well, you call it dua. You say God does respond. Allah does respond. But if he does respond to your prayer, that means you're limiting God. That means he is there at your behest. If that's the case, I'd like to know where you can show me that in the Quran. 
I know Muslims like to say that, those of you who live in the West. You see what we have, you want what we have, and you try to apply it to your God. You cannot do that because you immediately, God then comes and responds to you. How dare you say God can respond to you? You're nothing more than a slave. Can you see the problem? We can, though. Our God responds to us because he loves us as a father loves a child. Of course he responds to us. That's why I love when I get back to the scripture and see how God has wooed us back, responded to us right through history. Now, I'm going to help you. I can see you're getting a little depressed. You're going to come back and become a Christian again. Go ahead. Let's, let, should we convert them? Oh, yeah. Come on. I want to hear you all say, everybody say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Isn't it great to be able to say that? Now, Obviously, what we're talking about here is something completely different. Two different paradigms, two different, basically two different models. If it, does, it starts with God here it, and God's not here, then it's also going to end with God here and God not here, right? Because now we're going to end with paradise. We've started with the Garden of Eden. Let's end with paradise. We've come full circle. In paradise, for the Muslim paradise, it's what? It's a garden, again. A garden of palm trees, a garden of water. A garden of wine, rivers of wine. Are you permitted to drink wine in this life? No, Muslims aren't. Yet you're going to be able to swim in it when you get up into heaven. That doesn't make sense to me. What about this garden? We have rivers too, and we have a beautiful garden there. But let me ask you something. What's missing in the Muslim garden? Something is missing there, isn't it? What's missing in the Muslim paradise is the same thing that what was missing in the Garden of Eden. God's not there. God's not in the Muslim paradise. Look and see. If you look at chapters 55, uh, Surahs 55 and Surah 56, you see a good image of what paradise is going to be like for the Muslim. It's a very carnal paradise. It's a paradise where there's wine, women, and song. Women? Wait a minute. Are Muslims permitted to look at women in this life? No, they cover them up, don't they? In purdas, in chadoras. So they don't look upon their face. So their face doesn't seduce them. Yet they're not permitted to look at women in this life. When they get to heaven, they're going to have all these hoodies waiting upon them. Isn't that illogical? Isn't that contradictory? Absolutely. But if you don't start with God, you're not going to end with God. And that's exactly what you find in the Quran. They don't start with God there in Surah 2, in Surah 7. In Surah 20, and since God is not in this Quran, Garden of Eden, He will not be in this Quran in paradise. But in this case, what we're talking about in the Bible, God is there at the very beginning. He's there right through the whole history of mankind. He is there at the center of, of history, and He's there at the end of history. And that's the beautiful thing of what we're talking about. Take a look and see what we've got. We know what has happened because we can see what was lost. We know what paradise was like at the very beginning. That paradise was a perfect environment. God was there. We were in relationship with Him. We were walking and talking in the cool of the day, it says. That was lost because of one sin. One sin which required, in order to get back into that relationship, that one sin required a death. There had to be blood. There had to be bloodshed. That's how serious that sin was because God is so holy. In order for that to happen, someone had to die. But not just anybody, it had to be God himself. God instituted that with Abraham. He instituted that basically showing us that it was going to be he that was going to do it. That's why he did not allow Abraham to participate in the covenant. 2,000 years ago, God did come. He came as Emmanuel, God with us. He was born of a virgin, so we should not be surprised. He lived for 33 years on earth, not only to communicate what he was going to do, but to do what he had promised promised to Eve way back there in Genesis 3.15. That happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. That's where the blood was shed. 
And when that happened, death was destroyed. The penalty was paid. And because of what happened 2,000 years ago, we now know where we're going on the other side of death. We have the whole scope of history right there within the gospel, within the whole Bible. And that's the beauty of the Bible. It all fits together. God is there at the very beginning. He's there all the way through history, warning us, helping us, getting us ready for when he's going to come again in the middle of history. He came again in the middle of history. He's still here right now through the Holy Spirit. He doesn't leave us alone. That's what I would expect, a relational God. And he's going to be with us at the other side of death. Isn't he a great God? He's a God that I get excited about. I don't care about wine, women, and saw. Excuse me, women. I don't want to embarrass you. But when I get to heaven, I don't want to sit there just to be sitting there drinking a lot of wine and looking at women. I want to be walking with God again. I want to be talking with God again. I want what Adam and Eve had, but I want a lot better than what they had. I want to be doing that for eternity. And the only way I can do that is because of what God has already done. God has done it. He has taken care of it. That means I know what I'm going to be like. I know where I'm going. I know who I'm going to be with. And the Muslim needs to know. We've got to bring this into all our conversations. We've got to help them to understand. Listen, they're wasting their time away, putting all these good deeds on this shoulder. It's not going to work. It doesn't matter how many good deeds you have. Remember, there was only one sin that threw us out of God's presence. And there is only one act in history that brought us back into his presence. And that is what God did 2,000 years ago. God has already done it. We don't need to sacrifice anymore. God's already been that sacrifice. Thank God he's done it. Thank God we have the story. What a gospel to tell. It's all the way right from the beginning all the way to the very end. We've got it in one book. It's a great story, isn't it? Let's tell our Muslim friends.